It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Author, philanthropist, and teacher Len Twist says that by letting go of our deep-seated financial myths, we can begin to align how we earn and spend our money with our soul. Len will peel back the layers she first explored in her groundbreaking book, The Soul of Money. I believe that her teachings will challenge you to see our culture of money through an entirely new lens. So Yama Van Zandt, uh, the Yama Van Zandt, <laughs> told me about you, that she recently attended one of your seminars and said she was so blown away by your extraordinary message that it changed how she thought about money and put her on the path to change her relationship with money. Now, if you can do that for Iyanla, <laughs> who is the teacher healer, one of the great ones of our time. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And she says the same thing about you. Oh, I just love her. So what was the message that blew her away? Well, you know, I, I have been privileged to actually observe, witness, be engaged with people in their relationship with money really all my life. I learned tremendous lessons from people that I used to call poor, actually. People who I would never call them poor again because when you really get to know them, there's nothing poor about them. They've got every strength, they've got courage, they exhibit more courage to live through a day than most people will need yeah. in a lifetime. But, yes. but we, we don't understand that. And we, we, what's poor is their circumstances, not them. So that really awakened something in me about people. Yeah, not and, calling people poor. Not calling people poor, not but, seeing them as poor, but seeing them as whole and complete people living in the circumstances of poverty. Yes, their circumstances are poor, but not them. And when we call them poor, we demean them and ourselves, and we don't see them. We see something very different from who they are. And then I spent years, of course, raising money from people that I used to think were, rich. I called rich. Yeah. But they too are whole and complete people living in the ebb and flow and sometimes tyranny of excess resources. So we don't see their whole and completeness. Mm -hmm. um, so when we label people by their circumstances, we, we don't see who they are. Mm. We only see their circumstances. Well, what's really also very interesting, I felt this uh, when I was in India, mm. in the ghettos of India, in the slums of India, in the, and all around you are people who 
you know, have a five by five room and they're living in that space with an entire family, but there's a richness of life. There's a vibrancy, there's a connection to something deeper and bolder that you, you could not define as poor. Yeah. yeah. And often those circumstances uh, actually foster a, uh, a deep relationship with your inner riches. Yeah. Because you don't have outer riches to, to deal with. Right. And people who have outer riches to deal with sometimes think they are their trust fund, they are mm -hmm. their salary, they are their possessions. Uh, and they, they neglect who they are inside. So mm. I've learned a great deal from the people I used to call poor and the people I used to call rich. And now I just realize we're all whole and complete people living in the ebb and flow of financial circumstances that change all the time that do not define us. But we give the word money so much power. Oh you God. say this in the soul of money. We, we just give it. And I thought it was interesting how you talk about how we question everything else. We question, you know, race, religion, other life circumstances, but money, we just give it the power. We just give it so much power. It's, it's not that we have it, it has us. Yeah. And we've assigned it more power than human life, more power than the natural world, more power than our relationships with each other. We have. More power than God, actually. Yes. And, you know, we all know that's not true, but we live as if money is more important than anything else. And it, it, it cripples us. It gives us tremendous anxiety and suffering. So in 2003, you wrote The Soul of Money. What do you mean by that? Well, in a way, the title is kind of like a, a attention getter, yes. like a trick title, yeah. because money doesn't have soul, but we do. But what is our spiritual connection to it? Yeah, and when we deal with money, often we become people we don't want to be. You yes. know, we, we, you just think about women who can't talk to their husbands about money. As soon as they just bring up the topic, they freeze, they turn into somebody they don't want to be. Yeah. Um, when we're dealing on the plain field of money, somehow we drop all of this wonderful sense of value and worth and love and relationship that we have in the rest of life right. and we we become you know kind of irritable and grumpy and competitive and greedy and uh, it, it's like there's different rules or something like we're in a different playing field yeah people are really wounded actually in their relationship with money and not just some people I think everybody there is so much suffering in this world in people's relationship with money and there's anxieties, there's hurt, there's lying, there's things that they wish they had never done, there's things that they did do that they uh, feel bad about, things they didn't do that they wish they had done. You know, everybody has baggage, upsets, anxiety, suffering in their relationship Because with of the money. silent power of money. That's silent power of money. It's, it's like, um, you know, we, we think about what are the unanswered questions in life? Well, mm -hmm. I say, what about the unquestioned answer? that money is. It's an unquestioned answer for everything rather than the unanswered question. It's an unquestioned answer and we, we just think it will resolve everything. And everybody thinks, well, if I just had 30% more, everything would be fine. Right. But you think 30% of go and it wasn't fine. So, you yes. know, 30% more doesn't really do it because when you get there, you want 30% more. We, we're just completely addicted to a society that values money above all else. And it's hurtful, it wounds us, it hurts us. And the other thing is, I think the suffering around money is in the money culture and then we personalize it and make it our fault. Mm -hmm. 
Isn't this because we, as you say, we swim in the culture of what there isn't enough of yeah. all the time? Yeah. But there are people, as you know, as you're fundraising, raising money for people in the world who are living on $2 a day or $3 a day or a dollar a day, there are people who actually don't have enough of. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. I, I'm very intimately uh, familiar with that. I worked yes. on hunger and poverty. I, I've held dying babies in my arms in Bangladesh after a flood, in, in Ethiopia after the famine. So I know that people don't have enough. I'm actually not talking about that when I, uh, when I talk about the not enough or scarcity mm -hmm. myth. I'm talking about a mindset that's part of the money culture because the money culture fosters a way of thinking that uh, demeans human life, yes. exalts money, possession, stuff, consumerism, you know, things, mm -hmm. uh, and makes all of us feel like we're living in a deficit relationship with ourselves, that we have to have more of this or accumulate more of that in order to even be okay. And that is something that haunts everybody, including people who are immensely wealthy, actually. Yeah. So you say in order to break that scarcity myth, there's not enough. We need to live in the place of sufficiency. Yes. Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, uh, what I mean by sufficiency is a place of wholeness and completeness and deep understanding of who we are. And it's almost impossible to to get to enoughness or sufficiency in a world that exalts scarcity, the myth of scarcity. I call it the myth of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a mindset that an unconscious, unexamined set of assumptions that come before thinking, if I can put it that way, like a lens that we look through that has everything look like it's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough love. There's not enough vacations. There's not enough sex. There's not enough good men over 40, or that might be true. <laughs> um, there's not enough this. There's not enough that. And we go through a day, almost everybody goes through their day, waking up in the morning, I didn't get enough sleep. First thought most people have. Then looking at the clock, I don't have enough time. Then there's not enough of this. There's, I don't have enough to wear. Uh, and every meeting, every conversation, every lunch, every dinner, every everything is about what we don't have enough of. It's the siren song of a consumer culture. But it's not just about money. It dribbles over into every Everything. aspect of life. Yes, yes. And this, what I call toxic myth of scarcity, a condition of thinking that is so toxic to our humanity uh, that we swim in it all the time and we actually start to have a deficit relationship with ourselves. It's not just there's not enough, it's not enough, we're not enough, it's I'm not enough. And that deficit relationship with ourselves is the source of so much of our suffering. And it comes, I think, from this unconscious, unexamined mindset I call scarcity, which is made up these myths, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not enough. There's not enough to go around and someone somewhere is always going to be left out, for example. That's like an unconscious, unexamined way of thinking about life. And that, if you believe that and buy into that, then that's exactly what you will create. Exactly. And it gives people permission, actually, to accumulate way more than they need out of the fear that they're not going to have enough. Mm. So even massive accumulation often comes from the fear I'm not going to have enough for for me and mine, whoever I consider mine to be, you know, uh, this there's not enough mythology has us scrambling for more all the time, chasing what we don't have, paying no attention to what we do have.
So let's go over the three myths. So the first toxic myth, I call them the, mm -hmm. the toxic myths in the great lie of scarcity. Now, once again, this is an unconscious, unexamined set of assumptions, a paradigm in which we live that has us look out in the world before we even think and see there's not enough to go around and someone somewhere is always going to be left out and I got to make sure it's not me and mine, whoever mm -hmm. I consider that to be. I feel bad about that, but I can't help them until I have way more than I, my, than I need to take care of me and mine. So the first myth is there's not enough. The second myth is more is better, more of anything, more of everything is better, more, 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 more. And we live in, as we all know, a tyranny of messages right. that don't stop telling us we need more of this, more of that. We're not tall enough, we're not skinny enough, we're not educated enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not this enough or that enough until we accumulate more, until we buy more. So the more is better culture is everywhere and it doesn't leave us alone. And then the third toxic myth is, eh, that's just the way that it is. And there's nothing you can do about it. And the third one is, I think, the worst because it holds the whole mindset in place. It has us think that we can't do anything about it, so we don't try. It's the source of resignation. It's the source of people not thinking they can make a difference. It's the source of institutionalized racism. It's the source of institutionalized poverty. This, there's nothing we can do about it. It's just the way that it is. So we live in a culture that demeans human life, that exalts more of anything and everything, makes us feel that we're not enough, doesn't give us any access to our wholeness, and has us think that's just the way that it is. And no wonder people are miserable in their relationship yes. with money. Yeah. And you say, too, I love this, that if you want a clear picture of your priorities in life, who you are and what you care about, look at your checkbook. Yeah. Yeah. It really tells you what you care about, you know, and your credit card bill and your bank statement. Uh -huh. You can see exactly where your priorities are. And sometimes it's not that aligned with your soul. So yeah. getting back to what you asked me in the beginning, why I named this the soul of money is because people have bifurcated their life in a way that their life with money is completely devoid of this wonderful world of their soul of their highest commitments, of their sense of love and belonging. It's all about belongings instead of belonging. And that, that split makes us miserable. And we can integrate all that. We can bring it all together. We can live a spiritual life with money. It is possible. So do you believe you can have great wealth and have a spiritual relationship with money? Absolutely. You're I believe example. it. Perfect example right here. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, there's many people who do, and, and how they do that is by, by sharing, by contributing. Because, you know, sharing, actually, when we're, we're talking about how things expand when you do, it also makes everything better. Yes. Because I've said this many times that whether it's a bowl of ice cream or a candy bar, low points, whether, whatever, <laughs> it is, whatever it is, it feels better if somebody else is enjoying it. So you get exactly. to enjoy it, and then you exactly. get to enjoy it twice yes. if somebody else is enjoying it. And the more people are enjoying it, it brings you such great pleasure. Exactly. It gets expanded. Yeah. And when you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, it frees up oceans of energy that's caught up in that chase to turn and pay attention to what you already have when you actually pay attention to, nourish, love, and share what you already have, it 
expands. It's the opposite of what we think. You're a perfect example of that, actually. I was going to say, <laughs> amen to that. I've seen it over and over and over and over. When you share it, it gets bigger. Yeah, absolutely. When you share it, it gets bigger. And it, it, when people know that, it frees them from this chase of more and more and more and more and more. Because there's so much energy tied up in that in everybody's life. Even people who are just barely rubbing two nickels together to pay their rent. If they turn and pay attention to what they have, make a difference with it, share it, nourish it, it expands before their very eyes. A shorter way to say all that is what you appreciate, appreciates. What you appreciate, appreciates. That is such a fantastic tweetable moment. <laughs> oh, good. I could not have said that better. What you appreciate, appreciates. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's law, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a physical law that mm -hmm. what you focus on expands, what you appreciate, mm -hmm. appreciates. Exactly. And then to... you have an experience of enough, actually. Mm -hmm. How we have an experience of sufficiency and, is not, and enough, how we have that kind of experience is by sharing, by contributing, by serving, by, by nourishing other people. That's where real prosperity lives. Yes. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. 
Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. I had one of my daughters in South Africa write to me recently to ask whether or not she should, that she, she had planned on being a lawyer and had taken a teaching job during the summer and loved it so much and felt that she came alive and said, I'm now conflicted because I wouldn't make as much money as a teacher, mm. but actually said, it makes me feel alive. Mm. And makes me want to cry. Aww. Makes me feel alive. But my family is counting on me becoming a lawyer mm. because I will make more money. Wow. What wow. should I do? Aww. So of course you know what I told her. You can become the lawyer for your family and lose your soul in the process of doing it. Yeah. And what price will you pay for that? Mm-hmm. But many people, you say, in The Soul of Money, choose jobs not on their gifts or talents, but on how much it pays them. Right, yeah. yeah. And so how do we create a shift and stop this chase for more? Well, I think by recognizing that it's a mindset, not a reality, that the chase for more is an addiction, it's a pathology, it's part of the culture we live in, it's not our fault, and we can extract ourselves from that mindset by turning to pay attention to what we already have and letting go of the chase long enough to appreciate, to be grateful, to nourish what we already have, to care for it with love, mm-hmm. and to share it and contribute it with other people. Now, this sounds very um, Pollyanna-ish, mm-hmm. but it absolutely works. It works. It works. It works. works. And no matter where you are in the economic spectrum, it works. It's it's really, there's a a huge power in letting go of the chase and finding that waiting for us behind that uh, myth of scarcity, behind that chase, is this exquisite experience of being met by the universe over Over and over and over over again with exactly what we need. What's interesting is you write about uh, early in your marriage, you and your husband experienced the siren song of success. We did. Tell me what that was. We got totally hooked. Um, My husband, Bill, He's an MBA, from, you know, a master's in business administration. So as a young MBA, he got hired by a company that was one of these companies that trying to get to a billion-dollar company faster than any company in history. And, and they, they were very successful, and we started having more money than we knew what to do with. And mm-hmm. we had three little kids. And we were, um, you know, totally devoted to our children, as everybody is who has kids. But if you looked at our checkbook or if you looked at our the way we spent our time, you, you would never think we cared anything about our kids. There, we had a nanny, we had to be at this conference, we had to be over here, we had to be doing this. Uh, after a certain point, we thought we needed to be understanding wine because we had money, then we had to you know, know about art, then we had to know have the perfect dinner party, then we needed to, we didn't go to Yosemite and go camping anymore, we had to go to France. We sort of got caught in this, um, keeping up with the Joneses, you could say, but the siren song of the consumer culture, you know, we, had, we bought this car and then it, it didn't quite work because we needed a faster car and a better car. And we got so caught in it that we lost our way. And if you looked at our life, we didn't spend any time with our kids, actually. Uh, it was always gonna be next weekend or next week or after this is over, after we do this or we do that. And it was 
a rude awakening for us to really realize that, really a rude awakening for us. And it was the beginning of the hunger project that woke me up, really, mm -hmm. uh, when I started to recognize that not only did I not need to be somebody that I thought I should be, but that actually I had the opportunity to make a difference with my life mm -hmm. in ending world hunger. And then I started to actually realize that our family, our lives could matter. And I think everybody yearns more than anything to make a difference with their life. I think that's what people really want. They want to know that they matter and that being here has mattered to yeah, someone. Yeah. Yes, I think that is it. I think people want that more than anything. They don't always know that. Mm -hmm. But I think that yearning to make a dif difference with your life is one of the most fundamental longings of the human soul. And we can actually have that kind of relationship with money. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yes, because you say it's a conduit for energy, which I, that's the way I see it. Absolutely. And when used to our best or highest good, it becomes a currency, actually, yeah. for love. That's why it's called a currency. It's a current. It's a current. It runs through every life. It's like water, Oprah. Money is, is something that flows. And when we try to hoard it and hold on to it, just like water mm -hmm. becomes stagnant and toxic to those who hold on to it, when muddy flows, it nourishes, it cleanses, it creates growth, it purifies. And when we, money's innocent, you know, like water's innocent. It, it, it can carry disease too, water can. Yes. Or it can flood, it can kill. But when we send money or we receive money and send money through our life, let it nourish us and pass it on where it'll do the most good for the most people in a way that carries our love, the current of our love, mm -hmm. there is an integrity with the way we live. You say here on page 119, no matter how much or how little money you have flowing through your life, when you direct that flow with soulful purpose, you feel wealthy. That's true. You said it. <laughs> I said that. You feel vibrant and alive when you use your money in a way that represents you, not just as a response to the market economy, but also as an expression of who you are. Mm. When you let your money move to things you care about, your life lights up. That's really what money is for. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the source of true prosperity. I don't think you can actually get to true prosperity yeah. through the doorway of more, because the doorway of more will always give you lack, and then you'll need more again. And if you go through the doorway of more again, it'll lead you to lack, and then you need more again. But there's this magical portal called enough. And in a consumer culture where we're clamoring for more, we race right past enough, and we don't even know that it happened. There's no room for enough in a consumer culture. But when we actually turn away from that, just for a moment, turn off that chase and pay attention to the exquisite distinction of sufficiency or enough, it is so fulfilling that it overflows into natural abundance. You know, it's interesting. You'd say that if we explore our relationship with money, we can have this as a spiritual practice that leads to wholeness and fullness in, in every other area of our life. But I think when you say, Everyone, let's explore your relationship with money. <laughs> People start with what they don't have. Yeah. They start with the 
Well, give me more. Give me more. Yeah. And yeah, good for you, Oprah. You can yeah. sit and explore, yeah. but I, I don't have enough to explore. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean when you say, I mean, what would bring me great joy is to know that after our conversation today, there were people who listened to us that really would take the question of what is my relationship with money mm -hmm. seriously and look at that. And how do you begin? What are the questions one needs to ask oneself? Well, I think one needs to look at what bounty and blessings have I received from the universe that I want to acknowledge and celebrate? What do I want to celebrate about today? What happened today that I can celebrate, that I can be grateful for? And rather than waking up in the morning, I didn't get enough sleep, and going to bed at night with, I didn't get enough done, which is bookending your day yeah. with scarcity. I think this is interesting for us to think about how many times a day that tape plays that, of not enough, yeah. not just in money. How many times the not enough shows up? But what if we woke up in the morning and are so grateful for the sweet territory of silence and sleep? What if we go to bed at night? Oh, I love that. Hold on a moment. The sweet territory of silence and sleep. <laughs> Go ahead. And you can wake up that way. You can actually yeah. tell yourself to do that. Our mind is very obedient, mm -hmm. even if it's just four hours, and be grateful for that. And then at the end of the day, rather than looking at what didn't get done that's going to dribble over into mm -hmm. tomorrow, which is where we mostly end up each day, yes. to look at what I accomplished today, what I celebrate today. You know, today, um, every day is such a blessing. And I... I have a wonderful teacher now, Brother David Stendelrost, mm -hmm. fantastic Benedictine monk, and he's the icon of gratefulness. And he says that gratefulness is the experience of the great fullness of life. And when you're in the great fullness of life, the bowl of life is so full, it's almost overflowing, but not quite. Not yet dribbling over the edges. Mm -hmm. And you're one with God, one with the universe and there is no other when you stand in and live in the great fullness of life. And that great fullness is so powerful that it overflows into a fountain, the bowl of life. And that puts you in this other branch of gratitude he calls thanksgiving. Mm. And when you're in the branch of gratitude called thanksgiving, the bowl of life is overflowing. And you're so grateful that there's an other because all you want to do is give and share and serve and contribute. And that's so fulfilling. It puts you back in the great fullness of life. So, so yes. you can live in that cycle. You can actually live in that cycle no matter what your financial circumstances. And I say that people who stand in this context of enough sufficiency that overflows into natural, true abundance are the people who are living a life that really, really matters. And when people around them they feel valued, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel loved, they feel treated with reverence and respect. And that's the source of our prosperity. That's really the source of it. You know, the, the word wealth, the etymology of it is well-being. And each of us has a well of being that is infinite, that is infinite. That's the source of our wealth. That's true wealth. Part of what motivates your concern is for our consumption is what you describe as an ecological credit card debt that we can never pay back. Tell mm. me what you mean by that. 
Well, I, I now work with indigenous people of the Amazon in, mm -hmm. in a, a wonderful organization, the Pachamama Alliance, and I've learned a great deal from them, and uh, I've started to pay much more attention to our environment. Mm -hmm. And in 1987, we as a human family went over what's called the One Earth Line. In other words, we started using more resources than the Earth can regenerate. We started using the capital. In other words, we started uh, living off an ecological credit card we can never pay back. And in 1987, ecological economists predicted that in 20 years, there would be a huge economic crisis. Think about 2007, mm -hmm. 2008, uh, which would be a reflection of the ecological crisis because the economy, eco, is a subset of the ecology. And we are now in ecological crisis. We use 50% more resources than the earth can regenerate. So the economic crisis, I have said, is an accurate reflection of the ecological crisis. And once mm. we learn to live in our, in our, within our ecological means, we will have an economy that reflects that. That reflects that. Yeah. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense because Everything is connected. Absolutely. Because everything is connected. And everyone is connected. And everyone is connected. Yeah, everyone is connected. You know, we, we have this time in which we're living where the choices we make actually do influence the future of life for the next 1,000 years, mm -hmm. which we could think of as a burden, but I actually think of it as something that ennobles our life and gives us the opportunity to make the greatest difference any generation of humankind has ever made. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you. Thank you. My honor, my pleasure, my delight. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.